Lord, it is very possible, perhaps even likely, that there are some here with us today who will one day stand before you and will hear the words of woe rather than words of welcome. There are some here today, Father, who will persist in their selfish bent toward you. There are some here today, Father, who will not repent and look in faith to King Jesus. There are some here today, Father, who put on a show, but underneath it all, Lord, they are but whitewashed tombs. Lord, that may very well be the case today. I pray that your word of warning would let all of those, Father, who need to heed the woes, including myself, that we would look to the only one who could ever provide us welcome to you, your son Jesus. Let us be convicted, and then let us turn in faith to the grace of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Though I have no sympathy for these guys, I do somewhat understand why they wanted him dead. Jesus has slowly been pulling off the veneer of these men, layer by layer, over several chapters in this Gospel of Matthew. And now, all of the subtleties are dropped, and all of the restraints are removed as Jesus lays bare the heart condition of these religious men. Through his strong words, these men are now fully exposed to the people that they might witness them. And it is no surprise at all that in their colossal pride and in their dishonorable self-righteousness, these men wanted Jesus hurt, dead, and gone because we don't like to have our darkness laid bare. In verses 1 through 12, that we considered a couple of weeks ago, we learned that worship had gone wrong for the scribes and the Pharisees of Israel for three reasons. Number one we saw in those verses is that these men exhibited much talk, but no walk. They put on the show, but it wasn't real in their actions. Secondly, these men, they hindered people, but they did not help people. Rather than being a guide and rather than being a servant, rather than being a help, they only put obstacles in front of the people's path. And then third, these men were all for show. All that they did was to be glorified by the people who saw them do it. And Jesus, as we saw, Jesus, King Jesus, wanted the people, specifically his people, to refrain from following those types of practices by refusing all self-exaltation and by achieving greatness through humble service by following him and his example. This idea of worship gone wrong 
it drives us right through the rest of this chapter. As Jesus turns his attention directly to the scribes and the Pharisees of Israel by declaring a series of woes upon them. Woe is the word that drives this passage. And it is used seven times as Jesus indicts these men again and again and again. You read these words and you think, wow, was that bold. Wow, was that pointed. Who speaks like that? Who has the right to speak like that? Only one. Woe, pronounced in the Greek, uwai, is a declaration of denunciation that is mingled with a terrible warning. This is the judge of all mankind saying to these rebels against his will, bad things are coming to you evildoers. This is Jesus speaking with some of the strongest language he ever employed. A couple of these woes, they can, I think, be thematically grouped together. So that I think, in this passage, there are ultimately five indictments of woe upon these leaders that we're going to consider. Number one, woe to you, for you are of no eternal good. Secondly, woe to you, for you cheapen the truth. Third, woe to you, for you sweat the small stuff and neglect the big stuff. Number four, woe to you, for you are phony. And number five, woe to you, for you reject God's word. And the key warning that we must heed from this passage is woe to those whose worship has gone wrong. And I'm not just talking about the assembly on a Sunday morning. Your life worship, your quorum deo, your life before the face of God himself, and all that it entails. So let's consider each of these indictments of woe. Number one, woe to you, Jesus says, for you are of no eternal good. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Who talks like that? Who has the right to talk to another person like that? Only one. Now there are two ways that the scribes and the Pharisees were of no eternal good for their people. First of all, according to Jesus, they shut the kingdom in people's faces. Now it's interesting, back in chapter 16, if you can recall, Christ spoke of giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to his people, the church. Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And as we learned, Christ's church is given the authority and the responsibility to affirm on earth what God has already declared in heaven with respect to his people. 
Christ's church is to preach the gospel loud and boldly so that sinners can know how to enter the kingdom of God. They are, first of all, to proclaim the kingdom so that those who are God's people might enter it. And then they are to affirm whether or not people have truly been converted to the kingdom. Are people truly followers of Jesus, or are they phony like the Pharisees? He's given that responsibility to the church. Who's in the kingdom? Who's out of the kingdom? We are to affirm it. Last week, we affirmed six people that we said, we believe you're believers. We believe you're Christians. Welcome to our congregation. We hope to do more. But here, in chapter 23... The religious leaders of Israel are doing the opposite. They are closing off the kingdom to others. They do not accept Jesus, the king of the kingdom, as the Messiah. And therefore, these guys do not promote him as the savior to the people of Israel whom he came for. And this has the effect of actually, actually preventing people from hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. The leaders who should be saying to everyone, finally, he's arrived, are those who are saying, that man, that man eats with tax collectors and sinners. That man breaks the Sabbath. That man is a man that we're going to crucify. The people want to know about the kingdom. They desire, they've been longing for it. They want to be led towards it. But the scribes and the Pharisees and their pride and hatred of Jesus, they point them in false directions. And as a result, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. These men don't enter the kingdom themselves because they don't believe in the king. And neither do those who follow their wicked teaching. Because if you don't know the king, if you don't embrace the king, if you don't believe in the king, if you don't receive the salvation of the king, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's first of all. Secondly, they made matters worse for other people. There is some record of Jewish leaders traveling far and wide to win proselytes or converts from the Gentile realm into Judaism. People who would convert to their particular form of Pharisaic Judaism. But when the scribes and the Pharisees traveled for converts, whether over great seas or to distant lands, they only converted people to the same corruption that they themselves practiced. They went with hearts of self-righteous legalism, carrying with them no message of a crucified and risen Savior, with the result that the people are converted to self-righteous legalism with no hope of a Savior. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, were children of hell. Those are some incredibly damning words. According to Jesus, what I think he means... These people are children of hell in that they were destined to endure everlasting punishment for their great sin against God, primarily because of their rejection of the Messiah and their willingness to say no to him and point people away from him. They've shown their true colors. And they went and made converts who also had black hearts, just like theirs, making them also children of hell. So these men... They did no eternal good for anybody else. They only did eternal evil to people. And Jesus says to them, woe. The second woe he offers is woe to you, for you cheapen the truth. Verse 16, he says, 
Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. These men were blind guides to the people. Blind men leading blind people. Blind guides to the people because they led them to commit falsehood. Now the people in that day, to help understand this a little better, they had this unfortunate practice of making a lot of oaths and vows for various reasons in their lives, which were often abused as they failed to keep the commitments that they made, coming up with various excuses for breaking those commitments. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they ended up only making matters worse for the people, creating a really wicked culture, as they created a hierarchy of oaths and vows for the people to follow. If a Jewish man made a vow, and he simply swore by the temple in Jerusalem, or simply swore by the altar in the temple itself, then it was important, but it was allowed by the leaders to break, by that individual to break his commitment if he needed to. He could make the commitment, but as long as he didn't swear by something really significant, he could break that commitment. But if that same man made an oath or a vow and swore by the gold of the temple or by the offering that was on the altar, then that man was bound to keep that commitment. This was the scribes and the Pharisees' way of allowing Israelites to shirk their commitments to the Lord and to each other and get away with dishonesty. I'm going to go and give this offering to the Lord. I'm going to promise this to the Lord to glorify Him, but I'm only going to swear against the temple because maybe the harvest won't be so good this year that I won't have to give it. Or I'm going to do this good to my brother. I'm going to help out my neighbor next to me. But I'm going to only swear by it according to something lesser. So that when it actually comes to it, I then get to make the decision, am I going to keep my commitment to my brother, my neighbor, or not? You see how this just encouraged dishonesty among the Jews. And for many of the oaths and the vows in that day, they became nothing more than a commitment made with the wink of an eye, or a commitment made, but with one's fingers crossed. Hope, hope so. Making the commitment, but we'll see if it actually happens. But the ultimate issue with these men was that they failed to respect God's standard of truth. It's not just that they were utter pragmatists, but that they were failed to appreciate God's standard for truth. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, 16, he called the Lord the God of truth. One of his defining attributes is that he's truthful, that his word, we just talked about it with the teens this morning, when God utters a word, you can bank everything upon it, because when God speaks, it is always truthful. The pro Moses, he declared of God that he is, in Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's a God that's always faithful, always upright, always keeps his promises, is never dishonest to his people, ever. And he never changes. 
God's temple was to be treated with such truth. God's altar was to be treated with such truth. And the God of heaven should be treated with such truth. God demands truth from his people Israel. God demands truth from his church. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they taught otherwise. They cheapened the truth. They made less of it. They neglected it. And Jesus says to them because of it, woe. Third, woe to you for you sweat the small stuff and neglect the big stuff. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There was a debate in that day about what was to be tithed to the Lord. The Old Testament law required Israelites to give a tenth or a tithe of all that they grew, all the produce that they grew, give it to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it speaks of grain and wine and oil as being things that should be tithed. But in first century Israel, there wasn't agreement on how far this should be taken. Should even smaller crops be tithed? Things like mint and dill and, and cumin, should they be tithed? Or should we just tithe the bigger stuff? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were known to flaunt their great commitment to the law of Moses by not simply tithing with the big produce, but even tithing with those smaller products as well. Ah, oh, I see you brought all your grain, one-tenth of it. I've not only brought my grain, but I brought, I brought along my cumin as well, and I'm going to give that to the Lord. And they displayed this holier-than-thou attitude for the levels that they went to to meet this standard of the tithe. So they were really big when it came to the small stuff, emphasizing the giving of the minute things. But Jesus... Jesus rebuked them here because they neglected the far more crucial matters. They neglected the weightier, more pivotal matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness before God and others. My friends, in 2022, justice is not a word that we should be willing to ever give up. It means to administrate what is right and fair to work to make sure that what is right in God's eyes is honored on God's earth. And mercy is not only to showcase God's great mercy towards sinners, but it is also to actually practice, display mercy towards other people. And then faithfulness, faithfulness is to honor God's ways of love before all of his people, to be honest and full of integrity before his people. But these religious leaders, they paid little attention to these larger matters. When it came to injustice towards the poor or, or the needy, they gave very little care. When it came to the conviction of sinners, they provided no real relief. And when it came to honoring God before other people, truly from the heart and with their lives, they displayed very little real desire outside of simply looking good so that they could get the clap of people as they walked by. 
They certainly swept the small stuff, and they made everyone else feel small because of it. But they gave little attention to the big stuff, the far more important matters. And Jesus provided a humorous description of these men, if there can be humor injected into this moment. He says they strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. Meaning they struggle greatly to resist the gnat from being swallowed down their throat, yet they swallow the whole camel. In other words, they were serious about the small stuff, took great care over the small stuff, but really just didn't spend any time over the big stuff. And Jesus says to them, Whoa. Number four, woe to you, for you are phony. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus described their phoniness here in two ways. First, he he declares that they cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they were full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, I like a good clean cup and a good clean plate when I eat. I don't want any particles of food or drink from the last meal left over for this one. I think we agree, probably. But I'm most concerned that the inside of my cup, if I have to choose, I want the inside of the cup and I want the inside of the plate to be clean because that's where my food is actually going to go. The last thing I want is for the inside to be dirty. Well, Jesus' metaphor revealed their true focus. They were like cups and plates which were cleaned on the outside, but on the inside they were dirty, they were rotten, they were gross. He indicts their hearts, hearts that are broken just like mine and yours. Vessels from which no one would ever want to eat is what he's saying. They looked clean from a distance. Perhaps they even looked shiny and nice. But on the inside, they were just full of greed and self-indulgence. In their hearts, they were intent on securing more and more for themselves. More power. More influence. More respect. More money. More for themselves. And this was all to please their pride. It was all to satisfy their selfish desires. It was all to make them more comfortable. They might have looked good on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside they were pretty gross. And second, Jesus says they were like whitewashed tombs, which looked beautiful, but inside contained the evidence of death. During the days right before the Passover every year, so right about the time that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, it was customary to put whitewash, which was a solution of lime and water, on the tombs around Jerusalem so that travelers who were coming into the city would be able to identify the graves and stay clear of the graves because coming into contact, a Jew 
coming into contact with a gravesite, especially before an important festival like that, made them unclean according to the law of Moses. You can't go near a grave. You can't touch a grave. So they marked them with this whitewash that helped people stay clear. And these whitewashed tombs evidently looked pretty good because, if you can imagine, it covered up the aging stone with something a bit brighter. But inside of those tombs were just rotten corpses and dead people's bones. Something not beautiful at all. In fact, something that reminds us of the curse that came upon man, that came upon us because of sin. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, they were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they put on a good show, and they were even considered by many to be morally beautiful individuals. But on the inside, they simply showed deadness, full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. They did everything to look righteous before others. But inside, they were full of hypocrisy and even lawlessness. The teachers of the law on the inside were full of lawlessness. They put on a display so that others would think that they were so grand, but in reality, their hearts were corrupt. And though they appeared to be law keepers due to their outward acts of righteousness, from their hearts they did not obey God's law, and therefore they were lawless men. My friends, if you try to keep the law in your own strength, you're not a law keeper. You're a lawless man or a lawless woman. Because there's but one man, but one man who could and ever did keep the law, and that is Jesus. These men were phony. They were fake. They were frauds. They put on a show. They played the role. They were hypocrites, play actors, not men to be trusted. And Jesus said to them, woe. Fifth, woe to you, for you reject God's word. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The scribes and the Pharisees, they resembled their fathers, their ancestors. These men would put on a show by going out and decorating the grave sites, building them and then decorating them to look really good to decorate the grave sites of these prophet martyrs of old who were slain centuries before by their own ancestors. They would declare in verse 30 that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. It's so interesting how, how, how quickly we will look back upon others and say, well, I would never do what they did if I was in their situation. 
oh, the pride of such thinking. But what they ultimately revealed was that they were also but sinful men, like their fathers, with the same bent against God and the same resistance to his truth. Jesus said to them, fill up then the measure of your fathers, which means to go on adding to your evil work, but know this. Go on adding to your evil work, but know this, that this will eventually reach a limit and a judgment will come. Here's a promise in Jesus' coming. One day, Jesus will come back and all those who pervert his truth, he will say to them, no more, no more. You filled it up. The cup of wrath is full. You've accomplished it. You're not going to do it, not once more. There is going to come a day when only gospel news will be presented on this earth and no faux gospels like these men proclaimed. Oh, Lord, might you hasten that day. These men were snakes, and they would be sentenced to hell, Jesus says. The scribes and the Pharisees, they would reject the bearers of God's word just like their fathers did. Like their fathers, they too would be sent prophets and wise men and scribes, because the church of Jesus Christ sends out many to boldly proclaim his name. But their response will be just like those individuals who opposed Elijah the prophet. Or who opposed Jeremiah the prophet. They will kill them. They will crucify them. They will flog them and persecute them from one town to another. You read Fox's book of martyrs. And one individual after another beginning with the eleven disciples... One after another faces horrendous persecution so that almost certainly 10 out of the remaining 11 after Judas betrays ends up dying for the faith. These religious men of God would be Satan's minions of death against God's people. What irony. And if you read the book of Acts, you find out that this was definitely true. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would bear their guilt just like their fathers. Abel, he was the first man killed in the Bible. He was righteous, but he was killed by his unrighteous brother Cain. And Zechariah, we, we honestly don't know for sure who Jesus is pointing us to here when he speaks of Zechariah. Perhaps uh, the prophet who's mentioned in the Old Testament, but perhaps someone we don't know about, but perhaps he was the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that all the righteous blood that was spilt throughout the Bible, it's going to be laid upon these men. All the blood that's been spilt towards the prophets of God is going to be laid upon these men because they also are beginning now to slay God's precious people. They're going to take his son and they're going to give him to the Romans and they're going to beg the Romans to put him on a cross and the Romans are going to do that dreadful thing, yet glorious thing, and then they're going to do the same thing to his people, persecuting them from one town to the next. The scribes and the Pharisees, they rejected God's word by rejecting God's messengers. The men who were tasked to teach God's word rejected God's word and rejected the prophets of God's word. And Jesus says to them, woe. So, woe to those whose worship has gone wrong. Woe to those whose worship has gone wrong. And woe is the word that drives the application we take from this text. If our worship, my dear friends, 
at Riverside is or ever becomes marked by much talking and no walking or by hindering people before God instead of helping people before God or by doing it all for show, then my friends, woe to Riverside Baptist Church. Woe to us as a church corporate. Woe to us as families. Woe to us as individuals. For this woe, this denunciation mingled with terrible warning, it is for our ears too. Oh, don't misunderstand. Every one of us, me especially, battles false worship in our flesh, and our response must be to ever look to the God of immeasurable grace whose Son paid our debt. Jesus paid for false worshipers like me and you. My sins, your sins, Jesus died for that. I am a false worshiper. Oh, my heart. Oh, my heart. God sees it. I praise him he's redeemed it. But oh, the amount of false worship that has to be battled on a daily basis. Woe to us. Woe to us if we set aside the gospel work of Jesus and the spirit who proceeds from Jesus. Yes, we must cling to him. Yes, we must look to him. Yes, we must repent and in an ongoing belief, trust in him. But my friends, if we cast that aside, if we push away his gospel, if we neglect the means of having his spirit, then woe to us, my friends. Woe to us if we are ever of no eternal good to other people. Woe to Riverside Baptist Church if we are, if we are ever of no eternal good to other people. We are of no eternal good if we neglect Christ's given task of biblical disciple-making. If we neglect the task of sharing, conversing, witnessing, teaching, proclaiming, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then seeing that individual who's put their faith in Jesus Christ grow in their understanding of the word, begin to practice a walk with God, and see them also become disciple-makers. If we cast that aside, woe to us. There's a lot of things we can busy ourselves with. There's a lot of other things going on around us that we could probably feel pretty good about ourselves if we focused on. A lot of felt needs around our community. And felt needs are important. We believe in helping people with their felt needs, their physical needs, financial, uh, you name it. We believe in that. But... If we set aside biblical disciple-making for that, woe to us. We are not disciple-makers. We are disciple-breakers. We are those who, rather than pointing people to the one source of water that can save them, the one source of water in the desert that can give them the nourishment that they need, if we give them something else, sand, how are they ever to live? Do we make disciples or do we break disciples? And woe to us if we cheapen the truth. Woe to us if we cheapen the truth. We, we cheapen the truth when our word is not our bond. We cheapen the truth when our yes doesn't mean yes and our no doesn't mean no. Forget about oaths. Forget about the word promise. We cheapen the truth when what we say isn't what we are truly committed to do. It's not some minor thing. 
a man or a woman's word is a God thing. We declare our trust in God, and we declare that we're seeking to be like God when our word is our bond. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. Furthermore, we cheapen the truth when we are not real with each other. My friends, we are cheapening the truth when instead of being authentic and real and genuine, we put on a mask. That's cheapening the truth. And I would venture to guess you're like me. It's, sometimes it's hard to get through the mask because there's a lot of stuff that's kind of scary and vulnerable. I don't, I don't know who all to share that with, but at some level, at some level, with some people at least, there's got to be some absolute genuinicity, some absolute reality with people. The last thing we want is for those who don't know Christ to come in here and say, like the music, the guy sweats a lot when he preaches, but the people are a bunch of phonies. None of them actually talk real. They all act like they have it all figured out. And I've been around people long enough, and I know none of them actually have it all figured out. The last thing we want to do is be that kind of a church. And woe to us if we neglect the big stuff for the small stuff. We do this, I think, when we care less about the needs of other people, those who hurt those who are mistreated, those who are marginalized, those who are abused. We do this when we, when we care less about the needs of other people than we do about our own self-righteous religious performance. When it's more about doing the thing that makes us look a certain way than it is about helping people, who many of whom have just really lost their way and they need someone to love them and to point them in the right direction. We do this when we care less about showing the love of Jesus to others, forgiving their trespasses and patiently enduring their weaknesses than we do about having our own way. We can get so bogged down on small things. Well, I didn't like his frown. Boy, his frown kind of showed that maybe he's just not my kind of guy. Boy, I didn't really like her tone that she said. I, I think I'm going to stare clear of her for a while. This mindset that says that people have to be a certain way, meet a certain expectation to be allowed into our graces when we have been allowed into God's graces not because of anything that we have done. And yet we treat other people like they should be held to a different standard than God holds us. He saves us freely, not because we deserved it at all. He saves us. And yet why do we treat one another as if they have to meet a standard for us to show them our love? Woe to us if we are disingenuous and inauthentic and phony or two-faced. We do this every time we act as something we're not. Namely, every time we act as though our years of knowing the Lord or our years of sitting underneath sermons that we've heard, that those things somehow make us less needy of the cross than other people. We come off as phonies when we're those who think that because of how long we've been sitting here or a part of this thing, or going to this thing, or a member of this thing, that means that we don't need the cross quite as much as the other person, when what you're revealing is that you need the cross, perhaps understanding the cross far better even than that person. Because the cross is necessary not just for once, but for all days for the believer. 
because it reminds us of just how desperate we are, how needy we are of Jesus. We do this every time we put on a Christian face for other people, while at the same time we minimize the importance of God's word, we neglect prayer, we forsake the assembly of Christians, we fail to demonstrate any real dependence on God. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I prayed some prayer. I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I'll tell people I'm a Christian, but I want very little to do with his word. I want very little to do with prayer. I want very little to do with his people. I don't need all that. I'm sufficient right here. We would never say it, but that's how we live. That's not a Christian. That's a Pharisee. Woe to us. And woe to us if we reject God's word and his, and his message bearers. We do this every time we let the false messages of this fallen world supersede the truth of the God who made this world. Oh, we can be so quick to buy into the stuff that's just shoved down our faces. Things we listen to, things we watch, things we just ingest on a daily basis. And it makes us begin to think, well, maybe there's some hints of truth to that even though it's directly contradictory to what God says in his word. And we'll begin to follow that. And bit by bit, all of a sudden, we're those who are following the path down the wrong direction. And we do this every time we fail to honor those who proclaim God's word, even when it rebukes and corrects us. Now, there is a time to rebuke those who are teachers. Boy, did Jesus ever show us that. <laughs> but there's also a time to say, Lord, thank you for giving us individuals who would teach us the gospel. Because where am I without it? So, woe to those whose worship has gone wrong. Now, my friends, let me say, my worship's gone wrong. Yours has too. And the glorious news, as we finish off this message, the glorious news is that though our worship has gone wrong, the one who came and worshipped always aright is the one who laid down his life, shed his blood in payment for you and for me. All of us false worshippers rising again three days later and declaring himself king over the world and king over us. And if we repent of our sins, believe in him, we have an ongoing relationship where though we will fail, we look to him again and we say, Jesus, I confess my sin. I thank you that you're my savior and sufficient for all my past present and future sins and I thank you Lord Jesus that as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus it's not woe is me I'm welcomed not because I'm anything but because I know the one who is everything so woe to those whose worship has gone wrong oh let us look to Jesus and then let us pray that our worship would go right Lord, a hard word you've given us today, strong words. Help us to take them to heart, Lord, to heed the counsel of the Savior, but also recognize, Father, that in ourselves, Lord, we are destined for the same path as the Pharisees. And yet, Lord, in your Son, we find forgiveness and we find also strength to be those who become great, not by doing great, not by looking great, not by acting great for the world to see, but, Father, by looking to your Son and humbly serving his people, which is the path of true greatness. Help us, Lord, to have a worship that is right at our church, a life worship, a quorum deo before the face of God, where as we live, Father, we incre in increasing measure, we show ourselves to be your children. And I pray this in your Son's precious name.